Uh, The Bible reading today is Colossians chapter 1 and starting from verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thanks, Jane. A short reading, uh, but we'll go through it a little bit more slowly now. But let's pray before we kick in. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonderful word to us. Uh, we know that it, um, uh, it brings life. It also reveals to us truths about ourselves. And we pray this morning that you would give us hearts that are soft to hear it, Lord. Uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure if you're into reality TV. Um, I haven't watched it for a while, but I have, I confess, sort of gone through dark, dark times of my life when I have been sucked into the latest singing or cooking or dancing competition. Uh, And there's often a point, if you're familiar with these reality shows, there's often a point where um, the contestants are hit up against some sort of roadblock, some hardship, they're on the edge of giving up and they think it's all too much. And then the coaches or whoever it is around them, maybe the other contestants, uh, they give some advice and encouragement. Uh, and I reckon there's one phrase in these shows that comes up more, just about more than any other phrase. You might know what it is. It's the phrase, the encouragement, the thing that you say to someone who's struggling. Just believe in yourself, right? Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And, I mean, that's just sort of one example, right, of something that sort of touches into a much deeper current in our culture. Uh, This message, a very deep message, that happiness and success comes uh, by believing in myself, by believing in myself, to uh, believing that uh, despite all the um, difficulties of my life, I really am worth it, I really am good and great, I... And uh, at the heart, at its heart, I, friends, I think this, this message that is sort of in our culture, it is, it is a gospel. It is a gospel, a great, a great declaration about what life is about, what life's all about. And this gospel of self-belief, the gospel of self-belief is getting at something very significant, I think. It recognises that there is something wrong in us. <laughs> okay? It recognises that there's something uh, deeply broken, it exposes in us this sort of this longing within us for significance and purpose. But what it, it what it diagnoses, you know, it's it's its understanding of the problem and its solution, friends, uh, are in stark contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, for the gospel of self-belief, life in the end is all about me. It's about my fulfilment and happiness as a person through the recognition of my own worthiness. And, but according to the Bible, the, the Christian gospel, is, it's not about discovering my own intrinsic self-worth. Uh, in fact, the Christian gospel is not primarily about me at all. It is about Jesus. 
It is about Jesus. Last week we saw this stunning portrayal of the, the proclamation of, of Jesus Christ, the gospel that has been, been proclaimed, Paul says. We looked at it from verses one, uh, 15 to 20, and Steve mentioned it earlier. Paul made a stunning claim about who Jesus is. He is the one in whom and through whom and for whom everything was created. The whole universe is his. He is the unrivaled king of all things. Uh, But even more than that, we saw last week that in his death and resurrection, he has become the Lord of a new thing, a new creation, his body, the church. And friends, can you see how much bigger this gospel is than the gospels of the world around us, of our culture? See, uh, the Christian message is not primarily about me, about primarily about me, about how I can fulfill my potential. The Christian message is about God and his plans for his world and how they're all fulfilled and summed up in Jesus, how Jesus stands right at the centre of them. It's about his majesty and power and glory. Jesus is Lord, not me. I was created by him and for him and I wait for the day when everyone will recognise his lordship. And it seems to me that we need to be just a bit careful, don't we, of reducing Christianity, the Christian message, to something that is, in the end, all about us. Uh, We can be tempted to package the gospel as a self-help movement rather than a Jesus movement. Uh, We can treat church like a place to meet our needs rather than a gathering where we can love and serve Jesus and his body we need to hear this rebuke, really, of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Life is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's a long-winded introduction to get to the point that I'm trying to make here, which is this, and yet, and yet. If we were to stop at verse 20, we'd be making a huge mistake. Jesus is Lord. The gospel is about him and not me. But, and here, friends, is why the gospel is such overwhelmingly, incredibly good news. Because while the gospel is not about me, it is for me. It is for me. The Christian claim is that as we believe and live out this gospel about Jesus, as we as we turn our eyes away from ourselves and fix them on him, we actually see ourselves properly. <laughs> we see ourselves properly. We, our deepest longings begin to be met. We do begin to live life as it was meant to be lived because we live it in right relationship to Jesus, our Lord and Maker, the one who gave us life in the first place. And it's this shift here that Paul makes in verse 21. Um, it would be really helpful to have your Bibles open as we sort of uh, travel through this passage, if you have one there, and as, as always, uh, an outline in your handout. It's this shift from talking about Jesus, who he is, uh, to talking about you. Here is Jesus, the Lord of the past and present and future, the one we proclaim to the world. But what about you? You people in Colossae, 
What about you, you people in Victor Harbour? In what sense is this gospel for us? So let's read uh, verse 21 there, if you can see it in front of you. Paul says, And you, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Paul says the Colossians were alienated from God. And, you know, we had a lovely illustration there in the kids' talk of an alien. Uh, What he's getting at is this unbridgeable gap, right, between the Colossians and God. Um, It has the sense of uh, being estranged, sort of cut off, uh, like a child who has rejected their parents, cut off from them. Uh, It's a very strong and powerful image, isn't it, this alienation from God. But they weren't only cut off from God. Paul says, he goes even further, they were enemies of God in their minds. It's not as if they were cut off and regretted it. And No, they, uh, they were in active opposition to God in their minds. They were his enemies. Their thoughts were against him. And if you read on, it's, it's not the end of the story. This alienation from God, this uh, being his enemy in their minds, was, so, was linked to their behaviour as well, what they did in their bodies. Uh, if you look in your Bibles, you might see a little footnote. It's, it's unclear whether their um, being enemies from God in their minds caused their evil behaviour or the other way around. It's a bit complicated. I can talk about it later if you like. But either way, these three things all go together to form a really bad picture, right? A really bad picture. A life cut off from God, uh, a mind thinking that is against God, his enemy, behaviour that Paul describes as evil, evil and against God. And that, Paul says, is what the Colossians were. And if you're a Christian, that is what you were. But it's worth, us, it's worth us pausing here, I think, and asking ourselves, is this really true? <laughs> is this really true? Is it fair to say, if you're a Christian, that this is an accurate summary of your life before you became a Christian? What about those of us who lived respectable, decent lives? Uh, what about, to complicate things even more, uh, those of us who have always been Christians, who've sort of grown up, hearing and believing and trusting in the gospel. What about us? Uh, I don't think the point here is to kind of to try and find some particularly evil thing you did before you became a Christian or to get really anxious about uh, what, you know, what, how this applies to you if you've always been a Christian. Uh, I don't think that gets to the heart of what Paul's going on about here, what he's saying. You see, Paul's saying something much deeper than that. His point is that outside of Jesus... There is no hope. Apart from Jesus, the world is in hostility to God. Apart from Jesus, you are in hostility to God. You are his enemy. The central reality of the universe, Paul says, and we looked at that last week, a marvellous passage, the central reality of the universe is that Jesus is its good Lord. 
And Paul says a life that's lived in opposition to that or indifferent to that uh, is a life of alienation and it's sort of hard even for me to say it, of wickedness, of evil, at war with God. It's a really, it's an offensive thing to say, isn't it? It is an offence, and I hope we hear it properly today. I don't, I don't think I've heard it properly until either I'm sort of infuriated by it or I'm broken by it. Those are the sort of two options I think we have if we hear this rightly. Well, there, um, there are many points of tension between the Christian worldview and the worldview of our culture. And I don't know if you've read the news about what's happening over in New South Wales with the banning, uh, there's been a banning of a number of uh, Christian books to be used in the special religious education program over in schools over there. Um, The reason is still unclear why these books have been banned, but it seems that they've been classed as dangerous books uh, for promoting traditional Christian sexual ethics. And um, that's, this is sort of one of those rub points of the Christian worldview with the worldview of our culture. And that's, it is important that we engage on these questions, I think. And I hope we can learn to engage and respond in a way uh, kind of like this, the way that Jesus engaged and responded um, when he was misunderstood and mistreated, with, not with indignation and self-protective sort of anger, but with grace and love and self-deference. Um, but I think it would be a shame in, in this sort of environment we're in where there's these, these rub points uh, between the Christian worldview and the worldview of our culture. I think it would be a shame to become distracted by what are sort of outworkings of the gospel, real and true and things we need to speak on, but to lose sight of the central claims of the gospel itself. Can you see how, regardless of any other books Christians might write, can you see how the Bible is the most dangerous book of all? Um, Paul's not talking about a few moral issues here and presenting a sort of alternative morality. He says the problem is so much deeper than that problem is so much deeper than that there is something at the very core of me that is rotten in myself in myself I hate God I am at war with him I don't recognize his son as the rightful Lord over my life and at least if you're infuriated by that claim at least you're hearing it properly okay at least you're hearing it properly but there is friends another option And that is to hear this reality in humble brokenness, to acknowledge our rebellion, to see how just how wrong it is, in this context at least, just how wrong it is with God to believe in myself. Acknowledging that would be, well, it would be an impossible thing to do actually to be that brave to face it in that sort of a way if it wasn't for what Paul goes on to write about. That is what the Colossians were and Paul writes it very sort of frankly, he doesn't pull his punches, that is what they were. But now. Paul writes, but now he has reconciled you 
by Christ's physical body through death. But now, aren't they just beautiful words? Two little words. Uh, and with those two words, he's wrenched the Colossians out of their, their this dark past. And he says, they aren't, they, see, for the Colossians, their, their life is not dominated by the past. <laughs> Uh, Paul doesn't bring this up, this reality. He doesn't, I think, bring them, bring it up to just to shame them and sort of to break them and leave them in their brokenness. The reason Paul describes the the terror and the the reality of their past is to highlight the wonder of their present, the wonder of their present, to show what an incredible transformation has taken place. You were those things. But now, this is the reality that defines your life. Something has happened to you in all your rebellion and sin and all your evil behaviour. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. God has overcome your alienation. He has brought you peace instead of hostility. He has brought you forgiveness in the place of your evil behaviour, and he's done that all at an unimaginable cost to himself. You read that in verse 20 there, if you've got it open. Uh, We read that this peace came through Jesus' own blood shed on the cross. So this gospel that is about Jesus was for them. It was was for their past. it, it, It enabled them to see their past properly. And in humility to recognise that, but not to be defined by their past. It gave them a wonderful, transformed present. That's not all, though. We don't only have this incredible transformation in the present. There's something else that awaits us in the future. Paul goes on. He has reconciled you through Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This present, this reconciliation that is true of us now, this reconciled relationship has a future, has a future purpose. It's sort of the, the image Paul has in mind here is that of a courtroom, okay? It's sort of a, a legal courtroom. He pictures this great law court with God as the judge and with all people standing before him on our own, in ourselves, alienated. God's enemies. And there is no question what the verdict would be. Unholy, blemished, accused and condemned. But Paul claims that on that day, because of Jesus' death, we who were once God's enemies are now reconciled so that we will, we will be presented to him as holy, unblemished, free from any accusation. And it's here, again, that we sort of go deeper into how much greater and more wonderful this gospel is than the gospels of our culture. See, for the gospel of self-belief, your significance lies in your own worthiness. Uh, In the belief that you are great, and we can spend huge amounts of energy and time trying to bolster this, to, to sort of convince ourselves that we deserve every good thing because, as L'Oreal tells us, (laughs) we're worth it. 
Right? We're worth it. You're, you're worth it. But the gospel, this gospel, the gospel that is about Jesus, it knows humanity too well. It knows your heart too well to simply want to bolster your self-esteem. It does something far more wonderful than that. It does something far more wonderful than that. You see, in the face of all our sins and hurts and failings, the Christian gospel speaks a word of such immeasurable power and comfort that the gospel of our world just can't even touch. Right? It doesn't come close to. You see, you are significant, but not because of your own intrinsic greatness. <laughs> On your own, you are God's enemy. You are significant because of God's love for you. Because of his love for you personally. See, he has esteemed you to reconcile you to himself at the unimaginable cost of the death of his own son. God esteems you. This little tiny speck of dust on a, a, a little rock, you know, traveling. God esteems you. In all your insecurity and brokenness and burden, he esteems to take your life and make it new. To present you holy and blameless before him on the last day. He esteems you to give you a wonderful future. So friends, we have something, we have something that's so much richer and more wonderful than self-esteem. We have God's esteem. We have God's esteem. We have his unfailing love that is secure because it's anchored in the cross. And it's so much more liberating than the desperate and inward-looking search for significance and meaning of our culture. You see, the answer to our longings for significance and meaning and acceptance is not to look at ourselves. It is to look to Jesus. It is to look to Jesus. So Paul has this incredible, wonderful gospel that is about Jesus and that is given for us. And friends, if you're, you're trusting in Jesus, if your faith is in him, then this is true for you. Without question, without any qualification, okay, this is true of you. Outside of him, you were cut off. But now you are reconciled and you will be presented as holy on the last day. What Paul goes on to say in the next verse then, it's not meant to sort of uh, introduce some sort of uncertainty into that, right? It's not meant to undermine that confidence. Those realities are sure and rock solid. And yet, if you read on in verse 23, there is still a note of warning that Paul wants his readers to hear. Paul says that these things are true if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Paul's saying that with faith these things are true of you. So continue in your faith. 
He's not saying, and some people have read it this way, he's not saying that uh, faith in some way causes our salvation. It doesn't sort of it contribute to it. It, does, uh, it contributes in some way to our being presented holy on the last day. I think to, to say that is actually to fundamentally misunderstand what faith is. Faith isn't something that you contribute, is not some sort of feeling that you try really hard to muster up inside yourself. It's not a work that you have to try hard to perform. All faith is is empty hands held out to receive God's goodness and mercy and forgiveness and grace. It's a recognition that there is nothing you can do. (laughs) It's the natural response of someone who has been confronted with their own brokenness and rebellion and broken by it. And in joy and thanks and wonder, just receives God's incredible gift of reconciliation. Faith receives, friends, it doesn't contribute. <laughs> so Paul isn't saying here that you're saved as, by your faith as a work, but he is saying that there is no salvation apart from faith. He's saying that if we start closing our hands, if we in our arrogance and pride try to live life on our own without recognising Jesus as our Lord, or if we sort of turn our hands to other things, to the idols of this world of money and power and sex, family, job, whatever it is, if we start finding our identity in them and not in Jesus, Paul's saying he has a warning for us and it is a very real warning. Without faith in Jesus, without our hands open to him, these wonderful truths are are not for us. We don't have this hope. So, friends, please hear Paul's warning. Don't drift away from Jesus. Everything has been done in him. It's all been done. So stay in him. Keep holding your hands out to him. Keep your eyes fixed on him, trusting him to run your life. Set the foundations of your life in him so you'll be established and firm and not moved from this great hope. And it is a great hope, isn't it? It is a wonderful gospel. Paul finishes this little section by saying it's been proclaimed to the whole world and that he's become its servant. I think what he's getting at here is that this gospel about Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, it it is a universal event. Okay, It has significance and meaning for the whole world. Every person, every time, every place comes under this gospel. It is a great gospel. It sums up the story of the whole of creation, the past, the present, and the future of everything. And... It has captivated Paul. It's uh, gripped him. He has become its servant. And uh, if we've got half a pulse, then this, shouldn't this gospel captivate us as well? Shouldn't it captivate us? Shouldn't it sweep us up into it as well to become its servants? We're going to think a little bit more about that next week as we look at Paul and the way this gospel just gave him something to live for. Um, just as we draw things to a close, though, I uh, just thought I'd share a little story about an American pastor and writer. Uh, sort of, he was in the mid-20th century. His name was Jack Miller. 
He had a significant impact on global missions and church planting, actually. And um, you don't need to know much about his life, but he, uh, he, apparently he coined this phrase when he was talking to someone who was struggling with something, uh, some sin they were stuck in or some hardship. Uh, he'd smile at them and he'd say this. He'd say, cheer up. Things are much worse than you think they are. <laughs> Cheer up, things are much worse than you think they are. You see what he's saying? He, he's just saying what Paul's saying. You see, as long as we think our problem is just a little lack of self-confidence or if we just need a few more life skills to get through, of course... If that's the problem, then the gospel that you need is the gospel of self-belief, to to keep believing in yourself. But the gospel of Jesus says that things are much worse than that. You don't need a few more skills and positive thinking. You, in yourself, are a rebel, cut off from God, from all goodness and life and light. But in this incredible surprise... (laughs) This incredible overturning of reality. The gospel of Jesus says things are much worse than you think. So cheer up. (laughs) So cheer up. There is nothing you can do. In Jesus, it's all been done for you. So you don't need to restlessly strive. Hold out your hands to him. Receive what he freely gives you. That, friends... Uh, for Paul is such an incredible image, isn't it? And it is the joy and wonder of life with Jesus, of a reconciled life. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful gospel about Jesus. Forgive us for our own self-centeredness, the way that we do so easily turn inward on ourselves uh, and make life in the end all about us. Uh, Lord, I pray for each of us that you will humble us to know the reality of our rebellion against you, to not shy away from that, not to try and patch over it, but to recognize it uh, and in humility repent of it. But Lord, fill us even more, even more with thanks and wonder and gratefulness and joy uh, at the reality of the gospel that uh, into this situation that is so much worse than we even think it is. Into this situation, you sent your beloved son to bear our sins on the cross for us out of your overwhelming love. Thank you that you esteemed us, that we have your esteem that you have by your grace reconciled us to yourself. Thank you for the example of Paul, how it gripped his life. I pray for us, Lord, that it will do the same. Wherever we're at, uh, if we are living with you as our Lord or not, may this gospel sink deep into our hearts and transform us, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.